Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Seven, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. Praise God. Woody Allen said uh, many years ago, all my dates use the same 100% risk-free oral contraceptive. It's the word no. <laughs> the word no. No is powerful. No can protect you. And tonight I want to talk about saying no to a bitter spirit. Because you and I cannot help about, we cannot help what we encounter in life. We can't control all the elements. We are going to experience bitter things, it's inevitable. But we can control whether or not we ourselves will become bitter. And so I want to challenge you this evening to just say no to bitterness. And I want to read here in Matthew chapter 27, in verse 32, we're, talk, we're going, going to look at Jesus' example as he was being crucified. Many years ago, Martin Sorcisi produced a film called The Last Temptation of Christ. Martin Sorcisi assumed because he had a, a pubescent erotic ideal, ideas going through his mind, that it had to be lust, but it was not lust. It was actually bitterness. It was gall. And we're going to look at the last temptation here in Matthew 27 and verse 32. I pray that God can help us tonight as we contend to deal with the issues of our heart. Verse 32, as they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right hand and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. If you're the Son of God. I want to, this evening, talk, first of all, about the inevitable bitter experiences of life. This is something, as I said a moment ago, that we are not able to control. There's a bumper sticker that kind of puts this in a nutshell. Bumper stickers are interesting. There's a lot of people that seem to live by bumper sticker philosophies. Most of them kind of irritate me, and to be quite Frank, especially when you're in traffic, you know what I mean? And one of the ones that I always see coming up in the Bay Area is celebrate diversity. And it's funny. I see this bumper sticker all the time, yet when I look at the person inside the car, they look exactly like the other one. They tend to be 
clipped-haired, kind of mean-faced females and late-model cars with little prayers to Gyna and other goddesses as, in addition to that. And so, you know, sometimes I want to say, I'm waiting for the diversity. <laughs> You're still waiting because that's a lie. And people trying to make statements about this and about their honor student and this and that. I saw a good one one time. I saw it on a trucker. He said, my kid can beat up your honor student. <laughs> but there is one that I really think deserves to be in the hall of fame of things said that are not in the Bible. Truth that's not in the Bible. And it's one I can't even repeat. It goes something like this. Sewage happens. That's the best I can do tonight. Because it is true. It's a thousand times true. Life is full of things that you cannot control. You can do your best. You can live right. You can make great decisions. But it says in Ecclesiastes that time and chance, they happen to us all. And if you are, do not program your mind, as we heard so powerfully this morning, to... A, to, to see life for what it is, you are going to be extremely disappointed and consequently very vulnerable to bitterness. It says in 1 Peter chapter 4, Arm yourself with the same mind that he that suffers in the flesh is dead to sin. And what Peter is saying is that you and I actually need to arm our minds and say, listen, pointing at ourselves... It is inevitable that we are going to suffer. And he says at that point that you accept that reality, you actually, you, you, you strengthen your immune system to the power of sin. And so in this story that I read this evening, Jesus is confronted in a very significant way in his most vulnerable, vulnerable moment of pain and agony. You know, I, I was thinking about this, the, the Jewish religion. The Jewish religion, I'm going to say this. I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek, but I, I mean it. Redemption and salvation aside, there's no question in my mind that the Jewish religion is the best religion in the world. If you can think in those terms. Do you know what I mean? And one of the reasons why is the Jewish religion teaches the faithful, those that follow it, that bitterness is part of life. If you've ever experienced or observed a Passover meal, you, you'll realize right from the beginning that it's not, it's not like Mexican Christmas. You know what I mean? They actually have food that tastes pretty bad there on purpose. When they sit down to eat the Passover meal, they have several things that are, um, are actually spiced with bitter herbs. And those bitter herbs are there to remind you that life is difficult and life is hard and you're, it's not always going to be to your liking. At the conclusion of the Passover meal, they say, next year in Jerusalem, meaning this was fun, but this ain't it. Think about that mentality, how it equips you for life. Many of us have seen the old film um, Fiddler on the Roof. You notice right when they finish drinking uh, the, the conclusion of the of traditional wedding ceremony they kind of have a little toast and then they get the glass and they throw it against the wall and break it you want to know why they do that 
Why, that's in their tradition to remind them that they are still broken. No matter how uh, much fun they're going to have that evening, no matter how many verses of Nagila Hava they're going to do by the end of the night, there is still pain in the world and there are still realities that they're going to face in the morning. See, that's kind of thinking, however macabre it might sound tonight, that kind of thinking will prepare your mind for life. It will solve a lot of your problems. It will help you through your trials. It will help you stay married. It will help you raise your children because the reality is stuff happens. That's life. Jesus lives his whole life to come to this conclusion that he had to suffer. Jesus told his disciples the Son of Man must suffer many things. And it says that they didn't like that. I, want, I have a revelation, folks. We still don't like it. We're still bothered by that. We talk about Peter, but, you know, we're no different than Peter. We, we, we can sound spiritual, but when we go through the trial and we begin to deal with the issues, we can have some very difficult times accepting the reality of suffering. Our brother preached profoundly this morning. Brother went on the cross to bear. You know, this is a, this, this is a very, very uh, um, significant part of the Christian life. And following Jesus, and basically, we as Christians, if you read your Bible properly, are taught to suffer with dignity. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, remember the love chapter, one of the comments he makes is, love suffers long and is kind. Where you and I, in our suffering, have to maintain a certain posture that is godly. And in fact, I, I want you to know tonight that the posture that we do maintain when life is hard is part of our grade with God. When we go through things and we suffer through things and how we are able to carry ourselves and maintain a burden and maintain love, maintain respect and the way we treat one another and if you're a pastor and the way we treat our converts because sometimes we can be in pain as we minister. Jesus is on the cross, and He's suffering. And it's a very, very painful moment. And yet, we see that He, till the very, very end, is committed to go down properly, meaning to death. Charles Crofthammer is a columnist. He writes in, um, he's got a syndicated column, and he writes in one of the major publications, I believe it's Time Magazine, he, was, he wrote an article on what he called the grief racket. He's saying today people are making a lot of money off of tragedy. And uh, he went up, basically was making the point that many years ago people were taught to suffer with dignity. But today people don't want to suffer with dignity anymore. And so we hire people out to tell us what we want to hear. But he made this comment. He said, why then is grief work so popular? He's talking about the social workers and all that. And he said, because the grief counseling business lives off the universal modern dogma that venting and openness, talking it out and letting it out is good for the soul. Is it really? Go back only 50 years to a lost America where the silent bearing of suffering was valued. Today everything is said, shown, exposed for all to see. We did after all, have 3,000 years of well-recorded human history before the advent of the Greek counselor. 
Were people then more disabled by tragedy than they are today? The answer is quite opposite. And so what he was saying was that you and I today, just to break this down, we live in a generation that tells us when we are suffering, we have every right to bellyache. When we are suffering, we uh, uh, deserve to have somebody uh, sympathize with us and allow us to indulge our feelings in whatever we're going through. And he asked the question, he said, many years ago when they didn't have Greek counselors, were those people less able to deal with tragedy than we are? On the contrary. Years ago, before all the Jenny Jones and the Springer people, people dealt with tragedy all the time and with strength and with victory. Jesus is setting this example before you and I, the example for the ages. I have a quote I read, wrote down in my Bible years ago. I was reading a book about Job, and it was so profound. I forgot to write the author's name down, but the quote jarred me. This says, In every trial and affliction, there is an approval of God to be sought. In every trial and affliction, you and I have an appointment with God. Are you, are you listening to me tonight? Every time life is difficult, it, what presents itself before us is a kind of a test, and it, it is an opportunity, a prime opportunity for us to, to, to prove or to contend for God's favor and God's blessing. This is the old-fashioned gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. How many remember a film called The Bridge Over the River Kwai? That film was actually based on a true story, and I was reading about the true story of that. And in this little account that I read, they contrasted the attitude of the English toward the prison camp, the Japanese prison camp they were in. They contrasted that attitude with the attitude of the Americans that were also in the very same Japanese prison camp. The British, if you saw the film, they did talk about this that the British had a very highly disciplined, old-fashioned sort of guy who believed in keeping a stiff upper lip. And even though the chances of them surviving that camp were, 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 were almost zero, this good old Brit forced his men to get up every morning, brush their teeth, comb their hair, do calisthenics, and do some kind of constructive work during the daytime. I mean, we're talking about people living off miso soup, you know what I mean? If they were lucky. And they probably had very little chance of survival. Nevertheless, he believed that they had to suffer well for the crown. On the other hand, the Americans had very weak leadership in this situation, and they lost all hope. The American soldiers did not have to get out of bed in the morning. They did not have to groom themselves. They didn't have to do anything at all, and many of them simply laid in their barracks day after day after day after day, perishing from disease, from depression. Kind of sounds like a teenager, doesn't it? <laughs> disease, depression. But when the camp was finally delivered, guess what? Many more Brits lived than Americans. What a picture of suffering, folks. We all are going to suffer at some point. The question is whether or not you and I have an attitude that this is something that we are committed to live through or we're going to bellyache and pretend that we've been ripped off by God. First Peter chapter 4, 
In verse 19, God speaks to us concerning suffering, and He says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. Very clearly, you read 1 Peter, if you don't get it by now, 1 Peter is the, the suffering chapter. That you and I as Christians, at times in our lives, have an obligation to walk through certain circumstances and they are, those circumstances are extremely important to who we are and who we become in Jesus Christ. Destinies are won and lost in times of suffering. And Jesus leads us to the cross, inevitably. I want to change for a moment, having said that, and I want to talk about the temptation to become bitter in bitter circumstances. And there's a tremendous word picture in this story. When I read this uh, a, a while back and I was considering this, I saw a word picture concerning how we become bitter. Now let's go back to the story. Jesus is crucified and they are, they're, they're hanging Him on the cross. He's in extreme pain and extreme suffering. And the Scripture says at this point, that somebody, whether it was out of mocking or whether it was out of honest concern, offers Jesus some, some, uh, some vinegar and, and, and gall. Bitter wine and gall. This was a concoction that was used very commonly in those days as a painkiller. And it, it, it's interesting to me that the way this worked is someone was dying, for example, on the cross. He's in bitter pain. They tried to help him deaden his pain by offering Jesus the bitter herb. In other words, they, in his most vulnerable time of suffering, when he was at a point where he was broken, where he absolutely had no more control over his circumstances, he was hanging on nails. And it was at this point that they offered Jesus gall to drink, the bitterness, the bitter cup, to ingest His bitter moment, to deaden His pain. And I began to think about that and say, man, isn't that just like the devil? We know that the symbolism here is negative because Jesus refused to drink this. Basically, let me break this down. Jesus is on the cross. He's in pain. He's suffering. And the, and, and the devil uses this to tell Jesus it is time to feel sorry for yourself. This was a, 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 some sort of a, a, of a concoction. It had medicinal properties to it. And the devil was saying, you know what, Jesus, after all that has been done to you, after all the good you did, the people you healed, the gospel that you preached, the discipleship that you invested in those silly fishermen, nobody is here. And if anyone on earth ever had, an op had the right to feel sorry for themselves, it's you. Why don't you just tie one on? And so they got the rag, and it was bitterness on a stick, man. They dipped it in the, in the gall, lifted it up to Jesus, and said, Jesus, go ahead and just drink it, man. You have been burned. You see, in our bitter moments, when life around us is, is putting us through bitter things, one of the greatest temptations that we have at that time is to give in 
to self-pity. It's at that point that we are most vulnerable, and this is why, friend, you need to be very careful on who you have around you when you are going through a trial. I read an interesting article the other day on the foul-weather friend. You know, we've heard of fair-weather friends. Fair-weather friends are the people around you when you've got money in your pocket and you, your car's got gas in it. That's a fair-weather friend. But they were talking about the phenomena of foul-weather friends. Foul-weather friends are, are, are really distorted people. They are the kind of people who stay away from you by and large when everything is okay, but they absolutely feed off of tragedy and pain and mishaps. And the way they function socially in churches and in their groups is they wait to find out who is going through a trial. And when that person is extremely suffering, they present themselves as a friend and they will, they will literally take on a burden where they begin to nurse this person because they're, they're feeding off of this thing that that person now needs them in their time of suffering. And the strange thing happens to a, 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 a foul-weather friend is when that person starts to get better, they get mad at them. You know anybody like that? When that person starts to recover, you know, this person that invested time, you don't talk to me anymore. You know, you don't, but, but the, the, the real reason a foul-weather friend is able to even get in in the first place is because they have a way of playing the self-pity. That's their open door. They find out who's suffering and they begin to talk to that person and they get you to feel sorry for yourself and as you begin to indulge your feelings of self-pity, they feed you and feed you and pull them out. If you're going through a trial and you have somebody that wants to appeal to your self-pity, they want to tell you the pastor burned you and, you know, the church doesn't love you, I'm telling you, you need to put your fingers up, man, like you're talking to Dracula. You make a sign of a cross or what, I don't care what you have to do. You say, get away from me in the name of Jesus because that person is playing on your soul. What they are doing, whether you realize it or not, they are offering you in your most vulnerable time a big cup of gall. And they're saying, go ahead, deaden your pain with this. I love you. Nobody else loves you, but I love you. I care about you. The church doesn't care about you. The fellowship doesn't even think about you, but I care about you. Drink. It's, a, it's very, very common in that moment. Um, there was an old, there was an old um, medical practice in the middle, medieval ages called humors. Humors. And this is, this is fascinating because this reminds me of therapy today. Back in the day, they believed that you could heal a disease by bloodletting. You know, I mean, they thought that all disease was in the blood and that if you could cut somebody kind of like a snake bite, you can let all the bad out. You know what I mean? And they, they actually practice this for years and years and years. And uh, um, what it, what consequently, it actually made people sicker because when they gave, when the oxygen touched the blood system, it, it, it uh, caused the disease or the sickness to spread. It didn't heal it. But how many times today are people doing this with our problems? Rather than being strong and dealing with the issues in a biblical fashion, we are told today in our terrible world of therapy that if you bloodlet, if you just let all the bad out, 
Come on, tell me, tell me who you hate, sister. Tell me who you hate. Tell me what they did. Bleed it out, sister. Bleed it. Or brother. Tell me about that support you never got, brother. Let's talk about it. We're at Sherry's restaurant. We're safe, man. Come on, let's hear about it. That's bloodletting. And they found out scientifically that bloodletting was a very negative thing, actually. And it caused people not to get better, but it caused them to take on a greater infection. And a lot of that is merely you taking on a greater infection of what's inside. But that's exactly how the devil works. He wants you to indulge a spirit of self-pity. He wants you to feel bad. He wants you to feel sorry for yourself because he knows in feeling sorry for yourself, you are going to become a bitter person. It starts out with compassion, but really the aim is a bitter soul. He wants to get you intoxicated on bitterness. We outreach in San Francisco, 16th Street Emission. This is down in uh, one of the toughest neighborhoods next to a BART station. San Francisco is such a strange place. You've got to love it because on one side there are Christians outreaching and then catty corner to us the communists are outreaching. You know what I mean? They got that big sickle and... You know, as if history never happened and there was no such thing as Russia and China and 80 million people killed. But there they are. They're out there. And so one day when I was waiting for our outreach team to show up, I engaged one of these communists in a conversation. And uh, you, you, you got to see who, what they do. They set up their communist insignia and then they set up pictures. And I began to observe what they were doing. They set up a picture of a guy in dreadlocks. There's a guy named Mumia right now who uh, is being uh, tried for killing a police officer. And, of course, they set his picture up as some uh, big thing of injustice. And then they have a bunch of little pictures of brown girls from Central America. And what they're doing, they're strategically trying to make the minority people on that street corner angry. And so I, I couldn't help but ask the guy. I said, hey, man, I'm noticing that you got this Mumia guy. His name was Tyrone before he killed the cop, but... Guess he took on Allah as his lawyer, you know, now that he's in trouble. And then they got this, they got, you know, these other pictures. And I said, wait a minute. Maybe you can answer a question for me. I'm looking at you guys, and all you guys are middle-aged white guys with ponytails and earrings. How come I don't see any pictures of middle-aged white guys with ponytails and earrings? Yet I see all these dark faces. Could it be that you're race-baiting? That you're just trying to make us mad? That you're trying to get us to feel sorry for ourselves so you can manipulate us? That's the devil. That's what the devil is doing with Jesus. He's trying to get Jesus in his final moment, after a perfect life, to say, feel sorry for yourself. Now, just get loaded, man. Go ahead, man. Suck up the sponge. See, what, what, what really is working here is indulgence. We know that we are becoming intoxicated with bitterness oftentimes when we begin to let our guard down and indulge ourselves. This is the consequence of entertaining self-pity. You'll notice people that are always feeling sorry for themselves, they are the same people that are going to probably be called an addictive personality. You follow me? You know, oh, I have an addictive personality. People like to, you know, 
repeat this cycle, Babel. Basically, what you're telling me is that you like to feel sorry for yourself. And because you feel sorry for yourself so often, you've let your guard down in life. And you don't have much strength or discipline in the face of temptation. And you become very indulgent. This is why a lot of people who backslide, backslide what we would say really bad. You know what I mean? Because all this time, they've been entertaining in their spirit self-pity. They've been saying, nobody loves me. God never blesses me. God never... Wow. Should I take on another mic here? Praise God. God never blesses me. God never gives me a good microphone. And so they go through life with this attitude, and you'll find out that that's directly linked to indulgence. You go visit a backslider at his house, knock on the door, man, look in his refrigerator, and you always find, there it is, a six-pack of gall, man, right there at the top of the shelf in the refrigerator, because they're indulging themselves now that they feel bad. I have heard some terrible stories in the year. I've been pastoring about 13 years. I'll never forget the story. I had not been pastoring very long. And a woman had a big battle with her husband. Terrible things were said. You know, there were pretty young converts from, from, from uh, hard lives. But anyway, she went out and she contacted his best friend in the world and slept with him. I mean, this was an absolutely insurmountable problem to me at the time. And I'll never forget what she said. I'm just looking at her like, how could you do that? I mean, I was dumbfounded. And she looked at me and she goes, I don't know, I guess I was mad. I was mad as an insane mad. And what, what we're looking at here was somebody that simply probably has lived their whole life, as we heard this morning had a whole pattern of every time I begin to feel sorry for myself, the next step is I'm just going to do the first thing that walks by. A lot of people make terrible, listen to me, Pastor, a lot of men have made absolutely terrible decisions about their future and about their destiny and about their ministry in moments where they were feeling sorry for themselves. They indulged themselves. And somebody came along and offered them a big sponge of bitterness and gall and said, drink from this, brother. You'll feel a lot better. We love you. We care about you. This will deaden the pain. And they indulged. Many of us here have been on diets at one time or another. You know, one of the realities about a diet is that um, you can do okay, by and large. I'm talking about... The average person, and I'm an average person, can do okay as long as everything is going good. You know what I mean? If I'm, on, if I'm trying to watch my, what I eat and everything, I can, I can tell the line as long as everything's fine. I'll, I'll wear around the house with a towel on, you know what I mean? I'll witness faithfully about Dr. Atkins everywhere I go. I will, you know... a model dieter but there's a real problem the problem with dieting is when you feel disappointed you know what I'm talking about it's when you have setbacks in the middle of your diet that really cause you the most trouble because emotionally it's at that point 
that you want to say, forget the diet and give me the chocolate cake. I'm not making any decisions until I finish this thing and lick the plate and then maybe I'll try to figure out how to work my way through this problem. That's human nature. To indulge ourselves when we feel broken, when we feel hurt, disappointed. And this is, Jesus is being off, this is why Jesus refused to drink. Because he had every right in this time, just indulge yourself, Lord, just go ahead, man. You know, the Father will understand at this point. I'm reading the story and I understand. Just suck on that rag, deaden the pain, let that bitterness flow through your body, you'll forget the whole thing. Which brings me to what really bitterness is. How come some people cannot get delivered from bitterness? I've come to the conclusion that many people that are extremely bitter are truly intoxicated. That's the word image of this text, is that the, the bitter gall, the cup that was offered to Jesus, was not merely an idea. But that was actually what was given to him was able to deaden his pain by intoxication. And the, why do people get drunk? People get drunk for two reasons. They get drunk because uh, 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 they might be bound. And the other reason they dr get drunk because it feels good or it makes them feel better. Why are so many people unable to let go of their bitterness? Is because bitterness has been their secret drug or that little bottle you know in the drawer in the bottom of the drawer take a little nip of bitterness and they feel better you know bitterness has a life of its own it has the ability to animate you and to give you a reason to live there, you know why some people you know they get up in the morning because they have a whole list of enemies that they can hate. Otherwise, they wouldn't even want to go on in life. Really, bitterness is, is powerful. It motivates you. Oh, speaking of uh, Oakland Raider fans, I was talking to a brother yesterday. Like I said, um, one of the things that I probably have a problem with in San Francisco, now that I'm there, is all the sports talk radio. I don't know if there's any other sports talk radio guys here, but I just kind of drive around and I hear, and there's endless banter between the Niners and the Raiders, the Niners and the Raiders. You know, one of the, one of the ways that I know that I'm listening to too much sports talk radio is before our testimony services, I find myself admonishing the brethren to have it taken, don't suck. You know, if you heard <laughs> Romy... That's one of what one of the sports guys says. And it's, it's overwhelming. But anyway, these Raider fans, I was telling a brother last night, Raiders haven't won anything for a while. But they are excited. And I'll tell you why they're excited. It's because they're called the Raider Nation and the Niner Empire. And they're excited because the Niners are going down. And it, it, it's interesting to me, it gives them a reason to call into the radio station. Their team ain't doing anything, but the Niners are dying. This is fun. There's a reason, and it totally gives them a reason to follow football and read the sports page. Does that make sense? It's the negative things that motivate people. I want you to know, I've figured out over the years, that's the reason some people still come to church. 
Gabriel's like, why does that lady even come to church, man? She's like, I know why she comes to church. Because she gets to look at people in the, in the congregation and call them hypocrites in her mind and so little negative things to brothers and sisters in Christ. And, you know what I mean? And, and it it's, actually can be very rewarding at times. Because it has a life of its own. And people who get bitter, who are bitter, understand something very powerful, and that is, like all drugs, there's a high to it. Jesus was being challenged on the cross to intoxicate himself. There's a high to bitterness. That's why it's so hard to get free. How many people here ever did drugs? You know? I work for the ATF, man. You can lift your hand, you know. <laughs> you know what I mean? You did drugs, but I'll, it's, it, it was not merely the drug itself, but there was something about that escape and that feeling. And no matter how negative it was, no matter how destructive it was, man, it was personal. It was you and it. There was a little intimate moment there. You know what I mean? Where you could just kind of relax in it and say, wow. Everything's going to be all right for about 52 seconds and then the world got insane again. That's bitterness. That's why it's so difficult because bitterness is not just an idea. It's not just a thought. It's a spirit that intoxicates you, that gets you get used to, that warms you at night, that tucks you into bed, tells you everything's going to be all right. It deadens your pain. But Jesus, the Bible said, Refuse to drink. I'm going to conclude this evening with Jesus' example, taking a little closer look at it. And I want to close with a couple of thoughts. How can we get delivered from this habit? How can we just say no to bitterness and gall? And I believe there are three things here that if we look at Jesus on the cross that he did. First thing Jesus did was he look up, looked up and he prayed. You know, I find it kind of interesting that as Jesus was being mocked and scorned, his disciples are not even with him. They have abandoned him in his greatest hour of need. And the Bible tells us that Jesus looks up to the Father. Friend, that is the first thing you and I could better do in a bitter moment. He looks up, but in looking up, he did something. He looked up and he prayed. And he, may, he, and he went on to say this prayer, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now maybe I'm jumping to conclusions, but one of the reasons I believe Jesus prayed that prayer specifically, because if he did not pray, Father, forgive them, he may have said, Father, don't forgive them. In other words, the only medicine that he could possibly comfort himself with at that time was to say, Father, forgive them. I'm, you know, I'm not even going to look at them because if I drop my head, I might pull myself out of this cross and me and that 12,000 angels are going to do some business here. As they say in the world of wrestling, I might just open up a can right now. Therefore, I'm going to look upward Look up, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
I believe that prayer was absolutely strategic and he prayed those very words to counter the tendency to be bitter. Maybe I'm jumping to conclusions, but in light of that bitter gall in his face, he said no to the gall and he said, I'm going to pray for forgiveness. I remember one of the best words of counseling I ever got as a young convert about bitterness when uh, a pastor told me, he said, when you really feel yourself getting bitter at somebody, he said, pray that God will bless them. Pray that God will make them a millionaire. Pray that God will make them successful people. And I'm like, what in the world are you talking about? They're lucky if I just forgive them. But he had a point. What he was saying is, do the opposite of what your flesh, what your intoxicated flesh wants to do. Not only that, the Bible says that Jesus endured. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, Jesus endured. There are those moments when you and I have no other choice but simply to hang. Now, I'm not saying that to be funny. I mean, Jesus was on the cross. But you have to hang in your circumstances. And the Bible gives us exact time frames of Jesus' death. Those were minutes. And they, those minutes turned to, the, turned to hours. But He was on the cross. And it says in Hebrews chapter 12 that He endured. And He suffered the shame. The problem with faith is a great part of it has to do with perseverance and faithfulness. It says in Luke chapter 8, Jesus said, talking about the good heart that brings forth 30, 60, 100 fold, He said, brings forth fruitfulness with much patience. And there are times in life when uh, it may, things may not look fair, things are not vindicated, your name might be trampled at the moment, Nobody really knows what's going on, and life has not sorted out all the details yet. The jury has not brought in the verdict about what is right and what is wrong, and who is good and who is bad. And in those times, you have to endure. Jesus looked up, and Jesus endured, and He went through it. One of my greatest heroes in baseball, like many people, I'm sure, is Jackie Robinson. Back in 1997, Jackie Robinson... Uh, was celebrated. His 50-year uh, anniversary of breaking the color barrier was celebrated. And um, as I read a little bit about him, I knew he was fast. I knew he could play, you know, he, he could play ball. I, I, he could play th first base. I understood that he had athletic skills. But as I read his story, I was absolutely gripped by what he had to do in order to break the color barrier. He had a deal, many of you probably have read this, or, or I'm sure people have used it in illustrations, but he made a deal with the owner at the time of the, of the Brooklyn Dodgers, Branch Rickey, and Branch brought him into the office. He hand-picked Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson was a well-educated guy, he was well-spoken, but he hand-picked him, he sat him down, and he said, Jackie, I'm going to give you an opportunity to play in the major leagues, but you have to make me a promise that for two years you are going to put up with and endure 
all the torment that is going to be heaped upon you. If you decide that you are going to retaliate in kind, I'm going to let you go. And this was no light thing. Jackie Robinson would receive death threats. You can imagine the endless racial slurs that he received as he was playing first base. I mean, they would plant a guy there simply to be in his ear all game long. And Jackie had to turn the other cheek and turn the other cheek. And he had to endure the shame of it all. When his team went to uh, stay at a hotel, they would not allow him to stay. This man was a great baseball player, not because of his baseball skills, because this guy had the character to put up with the garbage. That's what's in such short supply nowadays. That we don't put up with any, oh, I've got to put up with that. You don't? You just might. And what is the thought here? And that is, again, Jesus when the gall was put in his face, he refused to drink. Spitting is a bad habit, by and large. But I'll tell you when it isn't. When Jesus drank the gall, he spit it out. And he said, I refuse to drink. I refuse to get bitter. That tells me that the only victory over bitterness is one of volition, that you and I have to make a stand with it because every single one of us in the midst of our bitter moments in life are going to be presented with an opportunity to intoxicate ourselves with that experience. How many people do you know who to this very day define themselves based on a bitter experience that they had many years ago? To this very day. And I'm not trying to minimize tonight uh, uh, sexual abuse and all kinds of other terrible things, but I know that you do not have to let those things rule over your life. I know that people have been burned. I know that some pastors have failed. I know that people have fallen through the cracks at different times in relationship. Those things are inevitable, but they do not have to define your life. Every one of us has those moments where we have to say, Life is bitter right now. Life stinks. But I'm going to keep my mouth closed and I'm going to refuse to drink these bitter experiences and allow them to be internalized into my spirit and my soul. Jesus said, this, this hurts, but this is only for a little while. I'm going to get over this. And he went to the grave, rose from the grave on the third day. We know the story. That's our example tonight over suffering and over our painful circumstances. Just say no to bitterness. Let's bow our heads this evening. I understand this is kind of a simple thought for a conference.